0: Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books, timely books for changing times. Our books are all available for sale worldwide through our website, www.justworldbooks.com. As you may be aware, one of the side effects of the political turmoil that's been gripping Egypt since the beginning of July has been that the Egyptian military has nearly completely closed the one crossing that until recently allowed Gaza's 1.6 million residents to have some access to the outside world. This has imposed a considerable new burden on Gaza's hard-pressed people. One of the people who has done the most to explain Gaza's situation to Western audiences has been Leila El Haddad, a talented Palestinian-American writer and activist whose family is originally from Gaza, and whose two books, Gaza Mom, which came out in 2010, and The Gaza Kitchen, a Palestinian Culinary Journey, which came out earlier this year, we were proud to publish. In mid-June, Leila was able to make a short visit to Gaza and to reconnect with some of the women and men there whose stories do so much to make the pages of The Gaza Kitchen come alive. The book, by the way, functions very well as a cookbook. It brilliantly documents the very distinctive cuisine of Gaza, which is one of the Arab world's best-kept secrets, and it has even been named Best Arab Cuisine Cookbook of 2013. But it is also much more than a cookbook, giving readers an intimate bird's-eye peek into the kitchens and homes of some of Gaza's best home cooks, and providing lots of information both about how the Gaza Strip's hard-stretched food system actually works and how Gaza's cooks and food suppliers have adapted to the many challenges they face due to the tight blockade that Israel has maintained around the Strip since 2006. Anyway, on July July 13th, I was finally able to catch up with Leila by phone and to conduct a short phone interview with her. In the interview, she talked a bit about her recent visit to Gaza, and she also talked about what she's been hearing from family and friends there about how the Egyptian military's closure of the border has been affecting their lives. After you listen to the interview, which lasts around 15 minutes, I'm going to read a short excerpt from the Gaza Kitchen that deals with the issue of the fishing limits that Gaza's fishermen have to deal with. Of course, we hope that you will buy and read both of Leila El Haddad's books for yourself. The first one is called Gaza Mom, and the most recent is The Gaza Kitchen, A Palestinian Culinary Journey. You can buy them via our website, www.justworldbooks.com. Now, here's the interview.
1: Leila, about a month ago, was was in Gaza, and that was her first visit to the Gaza Strip since the appearance of her Gaza Kitchen cookbook that she co-authored with Maggie Schmidt. So, Leila, first of all, um, how did people there like the cookbook?
2: Well, they were very excited. Uh, I I even got calls from the uh, head of the uh, Bank of Palestine who had seen the book in Jerusalem and was just... uh, Beside himself with enthusiasm, and you know, I'd, I wanted to see, I'd lend his support, and see what he could do. So, sort of on all ends, I, I was really pleased to find that um, that the people received the book very well. I think they were really happy to see, and sort of surprised uh, to see Gaza, you know, their home being covered in this way. Uh, so it was good. It was, it was, I think, really rewarding for me to be able to take the book back to its place of origin, to my place of origin, Uh, but also it made me realize the urgency of uh, needing to translate the book, I
1: think. Right, so um, we'll try, obviously, to get (laughs) translated into Arabic and French and Spanish and all kinds of languages, because uh, clearly it's, it's a work that people around the world will have a lot of interest in. Um, so did you get to catch up with any of the women or men who were featured in the book?
2: I did. Uh, you know, unfortunately, my visit was very brief. It was eight days, a very packed eight days, and I had my two young daughters with me. And so I didn't get to catch up with everyone, but I, those who I wasn't able to see, I certainly spoke with. And uh, it was, I think, nice. And, and if I didn't um, give them the books, that's part of my mission was to be able to deliver the books to the people, the subjects that we interviewed, um, or those that helped us along the way. But if I wasn't able to do it, then uh, some of the many journalists who were interested in the book and interested in visiting the women were able to deliver it. And they were the women were really pleased, I think, to be able to see what this was all about, to get a, a better understanding. But again, I think until it's translated in Arabic, it won't make complete sense. Uh, but it was nice. You know, unfortunately, things devo- evolve over these three years. Certain people, uh, s- some of the women are not so well off. Not that they were before, but the situation for them has been even more dire. Uh, for example, one of the women who, was, who had once a rabbit-rearing Operation Yard, uh, you know, no longer does, and supporting her daughter through college. And, um, but, you know, uh, life life goes on, I think, for everyone. Uh, one of the, also the uh, very rewarding aspects of my trip was that I was invited to give a lecture uh, in Gaza by this young uh, youth uh, group called Diwan, <clears throat> and they regularly have clubs and meetings and things like this. And so they found out I was there. I just put out a Twitter message and invited me to give a talk. And I suspected there would be a handful of people, but I was pleasantly surprised that the auditorium was quite full, maybe, you know, 50, 60 people. And we got some good coverage in uh, the Palestine, the main newspaper in Gaza, the Palestine paper. And people in the audience were really, I think, very interested. They had very, very thoughtful questions about the book, and they really got it, which was, was, again, really rewarding for me and um, I think for them to be able to see how it was pulled off because I had Malak, my uh, youngest, you know, eight-month-old with me and uh, she was just constantly sort of, you know, cooing and crying into the microphone and so I think they realized the challenges under which we were were working and, um, you know, it was good.
1: (laughs) Did you have any, any particularly memorable meals while you were there?
2: Oh, the fish, the fish, always the fish.
1: <laughs> you know, if I could
2: have the fish every day, I, I would, i tell you for breakfast and lunch and dinner. But I did go to Mukhayyam al-Shat, the beach camp, and um, it was quite early when I went, but I was pressed for time. Um, but one gentleman, uh, I think his name is Hatim Beker, uh he, he was nice enough to open up his, he has a little seaside um Small restaurant and uh, yeah, whipped whipped up a fantastic meal for me of um, you know small fried uh, mullets and um, crab soup and uh, some deep gamberi shrimps uh, in a clay pot. So it was just all incredible. And you know, I it was really sad to see having visited the fish market three years ago for the book and then again now that the size of the fish have even gotten smaller, the catches, that is, not not that the fish in the sea have gotten smaller, but because of the continued restrictions, Israeli restrictions on Palestinian fishermen, the naval blockade, really what they've been able to reel in is just, I mean, everything I saw there, and I went very early at 5 or 6 a.m., to where they auctioned the fish off to different people and businesses. They were all tiny, nothing bigger than maybe 6 inches. And when I went to the the more upscale fish market I, I counted one sea bass that's it you know one large sea bass so that was to me very telling and you know a sign that what uh what we talk about in the book what economists have predicted and so forth and experts about uh threatening future populations and calling smaller catches because of the naval blockade is indeed uh coming true as pending out as they had predicted so
1: So that's the Israeli naval blockade that is maintained along the shore of Gaza. Um, Now, obviously, since you were there, which was in the middle of June, Gaza now has new problems regarding the land blockade from the Egyptian side. Um, So I don't know what you're hearing from your family and friends there about how the changes in Egypt um, at the beginning of this month have affected Gaza. Mm. You know, I was extremely fortunate because
2: I flew into Cairo, uh, and there's always an element of uncertainty associated with my travel there. You know, I had to apply through the Egyptian embassy, and then I got the visa, and it went smoothly when I arrived to Cairo, and the the border was open, Uh, but I could sense, like, something was brewing. You know, my taxi drivers kept saying as I was leaving Gaza that uh, they were beginning to restrict the number of buses allowed out, and... I was, you know, I was told that if anyone has a ticket, they should leave, get on so and so bus, um, from the, on the Palestinian side, because there was this expectation that the border might close. And um, and things were okay until my last day there. I was told by the taxi driver that uh, fuel was beginning to be in short supply. That was the, sort of the marker, the beginning of the crisis that now Gaza is facing. You know, especially today, where there's um, little to no uh, gas, and and uh, of course the Rafah crossing. Has been closed by Egypt uh, after the coup there. And uh, ahem, uh, of course, this has stranded something like 900 Palestinian pilgrims who had gone to perform Umrah during Ramadan in Saudi Arabia, as well as, of course, thousands of others. Now, it's been, from what, I told, from what I'm told, a few humanitarian cases have been allowed in and out. But for all practical purposes, the crossing has been closed. And so again, yeah, this just happened a week or two after I left, so I was very fortunate to get out, and it's just, again, another sign, it's just another sign that one can never predict what's going to happen at the Rafah crossing, it's, uh, just when you think things are okay, normal, that the border has been opened, and people talk about, oh, well, it's all, it's all okay now, it, you know, closes again for whatever reason, or it seems to happen on a yearly basis. And, of course, even when it is open, it just means that it's a little bit less closed because it's still, there's still restrictions on who exactly can use the crossing.
1: Uh,
2: Yeah, so things are pretty dire. And even the the situation with the electricity, when I was there, there was still the rotating electricity cuts, the power outages of eight hours at a time. But speaking with my uncle, with whom I was staying just a few days ago, he was telling me that it's gotten even worse now, that just, you know, power out around around the clock, and uh, and like I was saying, there's very little fuel and gas if at all available.
1: So that Rafa crossing, that is the one crossing that Palestinians from Gaza can use sometimes to get in and out. Is there any call in Gaza for Gaza to have direct ability to to go out without having to go through Egypt? I mean. Yeah,
2: absolutely, of course. Yeah, Rafah is the main uh, crossing, the only crossing that's really accessible to Palestinians from Gaza, in and out of the Gaza Strip. And it's controlled by Egypt using sort of older Israeli governing principles of only Palestinians with Israeli approved ID cards can use that crossing. But of course, the, the idea is that Palestinians... Are one with you know in Gaza, are should be one with their counterparts in the West Bank, and it's considered one should be considered one territorial unit. and therefore, of course, it is their, their legitimate right to be able to have freedom of movement uh, through other crossings, such as the Arab's crossing to the West Bank to Jerusalem. And that hasn't happened for a very long time. Israel has banned Palestinians from traveling. In fact, there's a categorical ban on younger people, especially students, to travel out that way. So just because Rafah, right now, of course, it's closed, but just even when it's open, just because it's open, it doesn't uh, mean that that other crossing should be, you know, that that there's not a problem, of course, when it comes to Palestinian freedom of movement with other crossings, other sides. So absolutely, they demand that right, and it's a big problem for Palestinian families who have spouses there, for students who want to study there, for... Uh, patients who need to go get treated there for whatever reason. I mean Palestinians it Doesn't need to be a very dire or pressing reason to be able to travel to other parts of of their homeland
1: So um, in fact all these issues about uh, freedom of movement or restrictions on the freedom of movement are beautifully covered in your um, 2010 book Gaza mom and um I don't know if you know, but we're in the process of of producing a new version of that, which is an abridged version, and it's going to be, um, I think it'll be, continue to be very timely, so long as there are these kind of restrictions on the ability of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza to move freely and to export their products and to import what they need. Um, So how is your family doing in Gaza when you, who, who were you staying with when you were there? So I was staying
2: with my uncle, my father's brother, who lives in the Sabra district of Gaza City. Uh, and they're, you know, like I said, they're doing okay. He's you know, a retired accountant now, and they've really adapted to the situation. And but, you know, he, like I said, in my conversations with him in the past week, he's been telling me things have been getting, have been getting worse. I mean, people generally don't like to complain, and they do try to make normal their lives as much as possible. Something that we, of course. Documenting great detail in the Gaza kitchen, uh specifically dealing with how women uh deal with these kinds of these continuous uh undermining of their lives and their normality and their freedoms uh and how do you kind of uh keep a life normal and be able to continuously shepherd your family from one crisis to the next so uh but so yeah they're they're you know they're doing okay for now. So we'll see what the next uh, stage brings, as they say. (laughs) But it is, you know, I did something I did sense, though, speaking to a lot of younger people, this really deep sense of frustration with just being holed in, unable to, you know, really bright young people, I should say, not just any that I was talking to, that have been, you know, out, been able to complete their master's degrees, for example, in England or wherever, come back, and just have no sense of possibility of hope on the horizon uh unable to move whether it's restrictions by Israel on one side by Egypt on the other i mean really this very deep sense of frustration of not being able to to move of being really being in a in a prison and um i saw that everywhere i was going whether when i was going to register for traveling uh at the the area known as abu khadra where you have to register to travel through rafah crossing and you know you just see this real see this, people, just completely desperate people trying in any way possible and, you know, not being able to if they don't meet all the different criteria that have been put forth, like you have to be of a certain age, you have to have a visa, you have to have a residency, blah, blah, blah. If you don't meet all these have-tos, then you can't uh, travel through Rafah. And it was just really heart-wrenching to see these people, this one, one guy from, I think he was Jordanian, I don't know how he ended up coming to Gaza for whatever reason, and he couldn't get out, and he just completely broke down and said, I'm not even a here. I'm trying to get out, and really, I mean, frustrating, and women obviously all lined up, everybody telling me their stories of, you know, their daughter married to somebody in Jordan, and they you know, met over Skype, and this has been very, become very common too, by the way. I've met several people who, because of the restrictions on movement, unable to meet in person and, and sort of got engaged over Skype or Twitter or whatever, and then having difficulty meeting up, either getting into the tunnels along the Egyptian border, which have recently been uh, also shut down, uh, or trying to kind of find a way to to sneak across or to meet, uh, you know. But but just generally, really deep frustration amongst the youth, of course, who make up about half the population in Gaza. And, And again, this is the point, we talk about this a lot, is to try to restrict their any hope of possibilities, you know, not the continued blockade in Gaza isn't about food as much as it is, that it is on a restriction on freedom and hope and possibility.
1: Well, I think with your writing, you try to uh, convey that really well. And um, thanks for giving us the time um, in the middle of your, your <laughs> I guess, complex Ramadan day there with your family.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, it's <laughs> I, my pleasure. Hope you have a blessed Ramadan. Thank you, Helena.
0: Here is an excerpt from the chapter on seafood in the Gaza Kitchen, a Palestinian culinary journey by Leila el Haddad and Maggie Schmidt. It is from an informational sidebar titled Fishing Limits in Gaza. By the way, this sidebar sits right across from a great seafood recipe for a delicacy called Kuftat de Sardina, sardine croquettes which are made from fresh sardine meat ground up with onion, parsley, dill, cilantro, and lots of other good things. Mmm, yum. Anyway, here's the excerpt. Gaza was once famous for its fish. Just nine nautical miles off Gaza's shores, there is a deep channel used by great schools of fish in their migration between the Nile Delta and the Aegean Sea, a natural resource plied for centuries, by Palestinian fishing boats. Until recently, Gazan catches often exceeded 750 kilograms of fish a day, and exports to Israel, the West Bank, and Jordan brought in millions of dollars. Fishing supported over 30,000 people, many of them families with a long fishing tradition, whether from Gaza or the northern ports of Yaffa, Hamama, and Ashkelon. With the Oslo Accords, all that began to change. Under the guise of detailing Palestinian autonomy, the Interim Agreement established a fishing zone of 20 nautical miles, where no such limits had existed previously. Over time, Palestinian fishermen saw these restrictions grow ever tighter, reducing first to 12 miles, then 10, then 6. Now, the Israeli Navy limits Palestinian fishing boats to just 3 nautical miles from the coast. Violations are punishable by violent harassment, boat seizure, arrest, and gunfire. This has drastically reduced available catches, forcing today's fishermen, as they themselves are tragically aware, to cull from shoreline waters the undersized and juvenile fish that would guarantee future prosperity. With Gaza's commercial crossings all but sealed to exports, any fish caught are strictly for local consumption. Well, as I noted, we hope that you will buy and read both of Leila El-Haddad's books for yourself. The first one is called Gaza Mom, and the most recent is The Gaza Kitchen, A Palestinian Culinary Journey. They are both available in paperback, and The Gaza Kitchen is also available as a hardcover. You can buy them via our website, www.justworldbooks.com. I'm Helena Carbon, saying goodbye.